Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. All right, this morning we have the great privilege of having David Bryant preach to us. So, David, I'm going to ask you to come on up. David Bryant is the headmaster of Providence Classical Christian School. Um, As he's coming up, I'll say this. David and I have gotten to be friends. And what I have learned about both uh, Providence and WCC is that we are are very like-minded. This is, uh, in fact, I just read your email this week. He, He was recommending that his school read... Carl Truman's book, Strange New World, well, I've been recommending that for months. So we're on the same page. In fact, the Carl Truman book, uh, I'm using that in a big way in my sermon series on Christianity and the culture. A couple of years ago, I preached a, a sermon series on Christianity and the culture, and I based it on Truman's prior sort of fuller book, uh, The Rise and Fall, Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. I think that's what it's called. Anyway, I'm so thankful for David and his leadership at Providence. We're very like-minded. We want to glorify Christ. We want to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to understand the culture, and, and we want our kids and, and us to know what, not only what we believe, but why we believe it. There's just a lot of commonalities, and I would ask this. I, I know it's a huge amount. If you are a student or a parent or a teacher at Providence or you have had have or have had any connection in your family with Providence, raise your hand up real high and keep it high. All right, look at that, brother. <laughs> so you can tell we're very like-minded, right, in, in, our, in Providence and WCC. And as I said, I'm so thankful for your leadership and just getting to know you as a friend. It's just been really great. So I'm going to pray for David, and he's going to preach to us, okay? I keep saying David. Y'all know him as Mr. Bryant. It's like, who's David? Uh, Anyway, I'm going to pray for my brother. Father, we love you. Thank you for David. Thank you for his leadership. Thank you for his wife, Ashley, being here this morning. God, we pray for their marriage. We pray for uh, their walk with you. Uh, Thank you for his wisdom and leadership at Providence. Uh, Continue giving him wisdom, Lord. We pray for that school. We support Providence in a big way, and we're so thankful for uh, that that school and it's just a blessing for us to partner with uh, folks like David and, and all the many wonderful folks at Providence it's just a tremendous blessing so Lord we ask you continue to bless WCC and pour out your grace on Providence and allow us to continue to uh, as we said to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ to be faithful to you to stand firm in a culture that opposes us and just allow us to continue to grow in our in our partnership with Providence and our appreciation for one another. So uh, thank you for my brother here. Bless him this morning. Thank you that he's going to preach your word to us this morning. We love you, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Good morning. It is such a great uh, pleasure and privilege to be here uh, with you. Uh, Ashley and I are both so glad to join you this morning. Um, we've won for a long time to visit WCC, so this is um, a good day to be here. And thank you, Pastor Jeff, for your leadership and for the honor of inviting me to stand here in this pulpit today. And indeed, on behalf of the whole uh, Providence Classical Christian School family, those here and those not here, thank you for your support of our school. And uh, thank you for your support of Christian education. Um, well, our text this morning for the sermon is 1 Kings chapter 3. I would invite you to, uh, to turn there if you have your Bible handy. 
First Kings chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. We'll read the whole chapter, and this is a, a hopefully a familiar story uh, to you, the story of Solomon's prayer for wisdom. First Kings chapter 3, we'll begin in verse 1. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed, pardon me, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings in that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You've shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in an uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne to this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this, and God has said to him, because you have asked this and not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days." And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. And then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and praise offering, peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. Now, when two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him, the one woman said, O oh my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth, and we, went, we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house. Only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night. Because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. But the other woman said, No, the living child is mine and the dead child is yours. The first said, No, the dead child is yours and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. Then the king said, the one says, this is my son that is alive and your son is dead. And the other says, no, but your son is dead and the son, my son is the living one. And the king said, bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king. And the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, oh, my Lord, give her the living child and by no means put him to death. But the other said, he shall neither be mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king answered and said, give the living child to the first woman and by no means put him to death. She is the mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered. And they stood in awe of the king because they perceived 
that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Amen. Let's pray once more. Oh Lord, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Oh, our strength and our redeemer. In the name of your son, our savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, a classical school principal named Matt Whitling once said, raising kids is a timed event with eternal consequences. There are about 16,000 hours between kindergarten and graduation. How we fill those hours, that clock that's ticking, impacts eternity. 19th century pastor R.L. Dabney famously wrote, the education of children for God is the most important business done on earth. This is the end for which parents are kept alive by God. This is their task on earth. I don't believe that's hyperbole. That's overstatement. The most business, an important business done on earth. Consider Paul's words in Ephesians 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction. That word is the paideia, the paideia of the Lord. I'm convinced, and I want to say to you today, that this generational vision is the strategic place for Christian families and churches to stand and to focus their resistance against the schemes of the evil one. Let's stand here. Presbyterian pastor Robert Rayburn, a number of years ago, uh, wrote that the purpose of a Christian family is as follows, to furnish the church with generation after generation of great multitudes of Christian servants and soldiers who reach manhood and womanhood, well-taught, sturdy in the faith, animated by love for God and man, sophisticated in the ways of the world and the devil, polished in the manners of genuine Christian brotherhood overshadowed by the specter of the last day, nerved to deny themselves and take up their cross so as to be counted worthy of even greater exploits for Christ and kingdom. Presently, the church not only suffers a terrible shortage of such otherworldly and resolute Christians, superbly prepared for spiritual warfare, but in fact is hemorrhaging its children into the world. Christian evangelism will never make a decisive difference in our culture when it amounts merely to an effort to replace losses due to widespread desertion from our own camp. The gospel will always fail to command attention and carry conviction when large members of those who grow up under its influence are observed abandoning it for the world. Christian parents need to see the primary work before them as the spiritual nurture of their children, equipping them and requiring them to live the life of covenant faith and duty to which their God and Savior called them at the headwaters of life. And ever conscious of the greater effect of parental example, they will forsake the easy way shamelessly and joyfully live a life of devotion and obedience which adorns and enables the faith in the eyes of their children. Close quote. Long quote, but I wanted to read the whole thing. I think it captures beautifully the power of how we raise our children, not just for our families, but for the church. Please hear it again. Your work, parents, is the spiritual nurture of your children, equipping them and requiring them to live the life of covenant faith and duty to which our God and Savior is calling them here at the headwaters of their life. And there is indeed no more crucial decision you will make in this work than of how and where you'll fill those 16 hours between kindergarten and graduation. 
And I use this word crucial carefully, purposefully to speak of education um, as the battleground for our children's soul and future. Consider this word crucial for a moment. A bit of a side, side path for etymology. The word crucial comes from the Latin word crux. And I'm sure there's some students in the room who know that the word crux means cross. So the word originated with speakers described something as having a cross shape, like uh, the two ligaments in the knee, the anterior and posterior cruciate ligaments that create an X shape, or a crossroads that uh, creates a, a point where two roads intersect, where when you approach it, you have to make a decision. And so crucial means decisive or critical. It, it, it's, it, it's, it means finally disproving one of two alternative suppositions. If it's a crucial matter, you can go right or you can go left, but you can't stay here. If something is crucial, you can't be neutral toward it. It demands that you choose. And so, friends, we find ourselves considering the crucial topic of education. You can't stand still because you're already moving. And I'm urging you to make the crucial choice of a Christian education for your children, and to stand strong there, to sacrifice to make it so, and to do so out of devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our all in all, as we read this morning from Colossians, who is all and in all, our great King and our only Redeemer, both of us and of our children and generations to come. And so education presents us inexorably with a choice. Educate for wisdom or educate for foolishness. My purpose here today, again, is to call you to educate your children for wisdom. Now, why connect education to wisdom? It might seem like a curious choice to some. Shouldn't we connect education to getting a job? Shouldn't we connect education to choosing the right career or readiness for college or financial success? Or perhaps the purpose of education is citizenship. Or, if you read the headlines, perhaps the purpose of education is social justice or even discovering one's gender identity. I'm connecting education to wisdom, however, because I believe that's the very thing that biblical wisdom teaches us to do. I mean, what is education anyway? We're, we're, I'm banding this word about. What is education? It strikes me that answering that question is not something that our secular society can readily do well uh, because our culture can't seem to answer uh, prior fundamental questions like, what is truth? How do you know truth? What is the role of tradition? Or, what is a human being? What is human life? Or, what is a woman, famously? Much less, what is education and its purpose? So consider this definition of education, one that I work from every day as the headmaster of a classical Christian school. Education is the cultivation of wisdom and virtue by nourishing the soul on truth, goodness, and beauty so that in Christ the student is enabled to better know, glorify, and enjoy God. And so if you consider that definition right out of the box, what is education? It's the cultivation of wisdom and virtue. It's the cultivation of wisdom in students. It's the very stuff of education, the cultivation of wisdom and virtue in little souls is what fills those 16 hours, 16,000 hours. And further, this central goal of cultivating wisdom is established by the Bible itself. You know, from the very beginning, if we just try to back out of scripture and think about the big story of the Bible, 
From the very beginning, God gave man a few primary gifts. When God created the man and the woman, he gave them life and wisdom and glory. Life, wisdom, and glory. Three key gifts that he gave them in the garden. Of course, all of which were tragically lost in the fall. But in his great grace, in, uh, God in Christ has purposed to restore humanity to each gift. And so in, in Christ, we are restored from death to life. In Christ, we are raised to regain the wisdom that we lost and the glory that he gave us. And so, ultimately, Christ is in himself all these things. Christ is our life. Christ is the glory of God incarnate. And in Colossians, Paul tells us that in Christ are hidden all the, what? The treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And James assures us that as New Covenant believers, we may receive wisdom simply by asking for it. What seems so revolutionary uh, uh, for Solomon in the 10th century, B, uh, century B.C. is it, a simple request for us as New Covenant believers. And then we should consider, and this deserves a whole sermon in its own right, so I won't do a side sermon here, that the one book of the Bible devoted to the topic of education, think about that, there is one book of the Bible whose topic from beginning to end is education makes the very goal of education to be the acquisition of wisdom from God. And so we read in Proverbs chapter 1, verses 2 through 5, these words, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing and righteousness, justice and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the, let the wise heart hear and increase in learning and let the one who understands obtain Guidance. There's the invitation of the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is an extended meditation on God-centered, grace-filled, the generational process of a son or a daughter receiving wisdom from a wise teacher. And so the cultivation of wisdom is the very end of education. And of course in Proverbs, it's a crucial decision because the only alternative to God's wisdom in Proverbs is not open-mindedness. It's not Well, accept God's wisdom or just be open-minded about it, much less inclusion, equity, and diversity. But no, the the crucial decision is wisdom or foolishness. That's the crossroads of the book of Proverbs. And it's made clear over and over and over again, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. (laughs) Wisdom's first lesson is get wisdom. Otherwise, you won't hear what wisdom has to say. But Proverbs 14, 24 The folly of fools brings folly. The wisdom of the wise brings wisdom. The folly of fools brings folly. And so Christian education, properly and biblically understood, is the submission to and delight in and pursuit of and transmission of and instilling in and wooing of the heart toward God's wisdom found in his word and lived out in the lives of the wise. And so that invites the big question. So what is wisdom? How do I get it? What is this beautiful gift that God is restoring us to in Christ, and how do I get it? And so to answer that, I want to go to 1 Kings 3 and visit this familiar story from the Old Testament. You know, I found it quite uh, striking. Where I, where I went to seminary, they had this massive library, and right there in the foyer of the library, they had this beautiful uh, uh, statue. It was about as big as this pulpit here, and it was this dramatic scene of Solomon rendering this judgment and of the woman 
cradling her baby and, and, and with the sword hanging over her head, with cradling her baby with the sword raised. And so it struck me, the entrance to the, libra- to the library was this reminder of gaining wisdom. The, the entrance to the library of all God's riches, we have to pass by what, what, what Solomon experienced, the reception of wisdom. We're told that he was given a great gift, a, a gift of wisdom that has never been surpassed. And there's, uh, there's so much we can learn from this account of God giving his wisdom as a gift, and then Solomon using that wisdom. Um, this was Solomon's education, and so it's a model for us. But qu- quickly, by, just uh, by way of introduction, before we come to this story, just make a few comments about wisdom and its definition. So there's an author named Mark Bertrand who wrote a book called Rethinking Worldview. I read a number of years ago, helpful book. Um, he does a great job of describing what wisdom is by stating a simple denial and then emphasizing it in three parts. So this is his statement. Wisdom is not what you think. So, first of all, wisdom is not what you think. He means that our sort of uh, the, the, our cultural assumptions about wisdom are almost all wrong. Uh, for modern people, if we just sort of did a, a, you know Jay Leno, some people don't know who that is, but uh, if you did a Jay Leno sort of man on the street uh, interview, who does man on the street interviews anymore? Isn't Jay Leno's not a thing? I don't even know. So anyway, man on the street interview and said, "What's wisdom?" What you probably come up with uh, is something that sounds uh, mystical, esoteric. You sort of travel, you know, to the top of, uh, some, some people don't know who BC comic is, you know, to go to the top of the, the mountain to ask the, the, uh, the wisdom at the top of the, the mountain in the BC comic. But, but you, you go to Tibet for this, you know, it conjures up these images of cave-dwelling hermits, lonely monks, and, well, Yoda. You know, the, 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 the tiny green Jedi master from the Star Wars movie. And so with his withered body, his sprigs of white uh, ear hair, and his shaky grasp of diction... Uh, Yoda is the perfect embodiment of these many twisted notions about wisdom. You know, wise must he be for understand him I cannot. You know, so. um, and so uh, it, it may be an exaggeration, but it's an exaggeration of assumptions that we really do have. By and large, our culture has adopted an Eastern conception of wisdom that sees wisdom as enlightenment. And as a result, wisdom talk seems to belong more to the realm of fantasy um, on foreign planets than fact. If wisdom requires the life of a hermit, is it any wonder that so many few people want anything to do with it? Biblical wisdom, of course, is nothing like this. It's not reserved for a tiny elite, and it certainly does not require the, the, the monk's life of self-mortification. Properly understood, wisdom is very much a part of everyday life. Second, Bertram says, wisdom is not what you think. In other words, the source of wisdom is outside of me. That may seem painfully obvious to us, but carried to its logical conclusion, it reveals something that modern man would just as soon ignore. Wisdom is about judging between right and wrong, good and best. And if it comes from outside of us, then right and wrong find their source outside of us too. In other words, the biblical uh, um, conception of wisdom assumes a transcendent origin of morality and justice. Wisdom is literally not what you think it is. And that's so offensive, you know, to the social media world. Oh, what you think? It's wrong. Um, Wisdom is what God thinks. And so becoming wise means gaining the mind of God. Again, in our cultural context, right and wrong are blurry. Truth has quotation marks around it. You know, 
Wisdom comes from God. The wise man discerns what is right and wrong. He doesn't invent it. And so in Christian education, we are training students to turn to God for wisdom. We're continually pointing our, our students to God to see that to be wise, their judgments need to correspond with the creator's. Psalm 36, in your light, we see light. We want to immerse students in God's light so that they will indeed see light. So wisdom is not found in uh, lotus position contemplation, imagining the sound of one hand clapping. Wisdom is real, revealed from God. Wisdom is not what you think. And finally, wisdom is not what you think. So cerebral gymnastics are all well and good. I play Wordle every day. Pretty good long winning streak. But wisdom is not about brain power, ultimately. Sometimes the Bible uses wisdom and knowledge and understanding. You can see it in our text here with Solomon uh, interchangeably. But there is quite uh, certainly a good deal of overlap between them. But discerning people are often quite knowledgeable. Knowledgeable people are, uh, often display a profound understanding of the world. But the difference between a wise man and a fool doesn't ultimately uh, come down to IQ, Action and sometimes restraint are what separate the, 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 the smart man and the wise man. Wisdom stems not from the intellect but from the will. Wisdom has to do with the heart, which in the Old Testament conception is more like what we would call the will or the gut, your purpose in life. It's a gift from God. It's, it's a transforming thing to be given the grace of God so that you, uh, in his wisdom, so that you want to do what is right. And so it's mental and physical obedience to God and his law. That means wisdom can be seen. Wisdom can be lived out. You can observe a person's action. You can observe their, their checkbook or their date book and discover, is this a wise man or a fool? If it were only a matter of mind, it wouldn't be so. I mean, for all that matter, you, you could, you know, walk past the cranky old man mumbling to himself on the, uh, scowling at you on the street. He could be a rocket scientist, right? But you can't peer into his inner thoughts and find out, uh, um, whether he's wise, if you spend a little time with him and observe his actions, you'll know pretty quickly whether he's a wise man or not. Does he discern between right and wrong and then act on that judgment? Is he indifferent to good and evil and withdrawn from the world of deeds? We're called not only to think the right thing, but do it. The purpose of the scriptures, the purpose of wisdom is to show us how to live. So Jesus said, wisdom is justified by her children. Now, the best brief definition of wisdom I've ever found is that of J.I. Packer from his book, Knowing God. Um, I bet many of you have read that book and um, have been influenced by it over the years. He says this, wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and highest goal together with the means of attaining it. Let me read that again. It's such a good, it's so pithy, so, so, so much good things in there. Uh, wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. So wisdom is not what you think. Wisdom is something far greater than simply, uh, something simply that you think. It's something you live out. And that brings us to the story of Solomon here. When we meet Solomon at the very beginning of the chapter, he's at the very beginning of his reign. He's a very young man, just after the death of his father David. And Solomon had gone to Gibeon to sacrifice. And while there, the Lord appeared to him, what we came to find out was a dream, and he asked him what one thing he wanted above all else. And, of course, Solomon asks for wisdom. In verse 9, he says, um, uh, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind 
to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. What a humble prayer. Solomon's confessing his fears about the great task before him, and he feels unequal to it. And so, instead of the many things he might have asked for, like wealth, power, uh, um, um, power over his enemies, Solomon petitions God for an understanding mind, for wisdom, the ability to discern right from wrong, righteousness from unrighteousness. And immediately that prayer was answered. And so we read that it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked them. And he, and, and he said to him, because you've asked this, and you've not asked long life, riches, etc., but you've asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been, uh, none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. And immediately Solomon had the opportunity to put this wise mind and heart to use. And so the story is familiar. These two prostitutes arrive with one baby. Both had given birth, but one had rolled over on her baby and smothered the child. And so one of the mothers had swapped the babies. And in the morning, the mother of the live baby discovered what had happened, and somehow they got access to the king so that he could, they could plead their case before him and ask, O king, please solve this dispute. Now, I could imagine Solomon at this point might have despaired and said how do you expect me to know what you know what to do here I wasn't there there weren't any witnesses this is not something I can do out of here but remember he had prayed for divine wisdom and and, and this story is is showing us the outcome of that prayer so Solomon said I'm sure it surprised everyone in the court bring me a sword And the king says in verse 25, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. And that must have indeed been some intense moments. A number of ancient second, anxious seconds must have ticked by while Solomon studied these women carefully. It's interesting. I'm imagining his eyes. The sword is raised, but he's not looking at the baby. He's looking at the mothers. And the true mother, we're told, yearned with compassion. And asked for the baby to be given live to the other prostitute while the lying mother was ready for the baby to be chopped in half. And so Solomon's ploy had succeeded. The baby was returned to the true mother. And as a result of this moment, Solomon, the word of his wisdom spread throughout the land of Israel. Now, it's interesting. This, it seems like this situation could have developed in any number of ways. What if, what if both women had said that they had given the baby to the other? Yet Solomon knew intuitively what we would have had to piece together, undoubtedly by inference, you know, sort of put it on a CSI crime show, right, to sort of uh, um, gather the pieces and put them together. Solomon had taken the measure of these two women, and he knew that this ploy would draw out the pretender. And so Solomon, in his wisdom, had already discerned the truth of the matter and then was able to use that wisdom quickly to calculate what ought to be done and what righteousness, um, what to do so that righteousness would result. Now, the remarkable thing about the story as I think about it is that Solomon, uh, who was born into a royal family, raised as the eldest son, as a favorite, far removed from the sordid lives of the lowest orders of society, can see into the hearts of these two common women and devise a way to, distrim- to demonstrate which one is the liar and which one tells the truth. That's remarkable wisdom. So, uh, the, again, the, the type of wisdom on display here is quite different from this mystical kind of knowledge that moderns associate with the term. Remember, the words of Solomon's prayer, that I may discern good from evil. 
That's the kind of wisdom Solomon is demonstrating. Practical discernment, the ability to judge, the faculty to distinguish truth from lies. And it's this wisdom that God grants to his people so that we might live out his truth in the world. And it's this wisdom, ultimately, that we aim to cultivate in our children through the years of educating our children toward maturity. By nourishing them in wisdom, we're aiming for them to become that tree of Psalm 1, right? That tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. Let me take the last few minutes here and make a few connections. First, wisdom and grace. The Apostle Paul asked the question, what do you have that you did not first receive? By grace, through faith, describes every gift that we receive from God, every good and perfect gift that comes from him in Christ. And the gift of wisdom an answer to prayer like Solomon, but received through the long years of a child's schooling is no different. Um, raising our children in the wisdom of the Lord is a gift of his grace. We are reliant on him. And it strikes me that modern progressive secular education is characterized by just a breathtaking lack of humility and gratitude. And the, 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 the keynote of education here is thankfulness, gratitude, receptiveness, and hands open. Lord, give what we don't have because we need it from you. It's the, it's the humble posture of the Solomon, the King Solomon, who says, Lord, I can't do what you called me to do. Fill me up and give me, enable me to do what you do. We often think of uh, God's grace, of course, as God's undeserved favor, giving what I don't deserve, but it's also God's power to do what he's called me to do. Right? Augustine says, Lord, command what you will and then enable me to do it. That's God's grace. And so with hands open, we say, like Solomon, Lord, you, you've commanded me to raise up my children. You've commanded my children to be wise. Give what, you, give what you command, Lord. You know, we don't believe that a child is this fortuitous blob of protoplasm waiting to decompose. We believe that, that this child is nothing less than the divine image, a very icon of an invisible God. If you want to know what God is like, look at the face of a child. And so this child, therefore, must not be taught according to techniques developed for beasts. She needs to not be reduced to mere chemical responses to electrical stimuli, stimuli in the brain. This child needs to be taught as a, as, a, as a holy activity, personally, in relationship with a wise teacher and with the God of all grace. And so our burden must be to nurture our children's relationship with God their Father through Christ the Savior and the power of the Spirit so that they might know him and receive his grace. The grace of drawing near to God and enjoying him is what education is and the source and result of wisdom, which is always a gift of his grace. And so the education of our children from beginning to end is a story of the grace of God in Christ. Consider that. Educating your children, you are in a story of your children receiving grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest we boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Our children are themselves that workmanship. And the education is itself the good work prepared before us to walk in, all by the abundant grace of God in Christ. So, uh, educating for wisdom means 
uh, uh, educating, from, educating from a position of receiving, receiving the abundant grace of God in Christ. Second, uh, wisdom and the teacher. Uh, consider that in the story of Solomon, despite the fact that Solomon threatened to have a baby chopped in half, what he did in wisely solving this quandary of the two prostitutes was ultimately loving. Maybe we, maybe that, that's sort of the definition of tough love, right? Sword race, it's about to chop a baby in half. That's tough love. But of course, he knew he wouldn't need to. Um, he knew that the threatened execution would pull out the, the fake mother, and Solomon interfe- intervened to reunite a mother and a son. Solomon corrected a wrong that would have had lasting detrimental effects on this family. And so it is, uh, with this uh, great act of justice on Solomon's part, to make sure that God's law was done. But it was certainly a great act of mercy and compassion as well. And so this text is showing us that wisdom helps us to know how to love others wisely. And God is calling you, parents, to act in love, to impart your children uh, wisdom so that they might act in love. I mentioned a moment ago, we were educating these divine image bearers, bound for glory, and that has to be relational. And a Christian understanding of education, teachers teach and students learn from those teachers like sheep hearkening to the sound of the shepherd or like a son hearing the words, uh, the tender words of his father um, so that he might receive that wisdom, wisdom and it be a beautiful ornament around his neck. Jesus said, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. And so... But both you parents and wise pastors, mentors, teachers who surround our children throughout their growing years are instruments in God's hands called to train up children in wisdom. So what I'm getting at is this. Will God appear in a dream and impart wisdom to our children? I pray he does. But the ordinary, I love that word ordinary in the Westminster Confession of Faith, the ordinary means of grace. The ordinary way that God works is through wise teachers to impart wisdom. That is your calling, parents. You are the instruments for the impartation of this wisdom. So hear afresh the words of Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And these words, Moses says, that I command you today shall be on your heart, parents. They shall be in your heart, and you then shall teach them the words of God diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And so the word first for you parents is for the word to be in you so that you can impart that word to your children. It has to be in that order. And so you you yourself parents are striving for biblical wisdom so that you may invite children to follow your example. You're always teaching. It's inescapable. So be sure that the wisdom that you want your children to know and follow is the wisdom that you are teaching, the wisdom of God himself. And third, wisdom and the enemy. We're not imparting this wisdom in a vacuum, are we? We could just reference Pastor Jeff's series of sermons of of what is going on in our culture. Let's don't overlook the simple fact that Solomon uses wisdom to settle a dispute that came in the midst of family and generational dysfunction and death. It, it sends me back to think of uh, uh, um, the pastor of my church in, in Texas. He, he, uh, he was adopted. He was adopted by a grandmother uh, who, uh, w- with a, a, a lovely, beautiful Christian lady who raised him in a Christian home. Just imagine what, what remarkable 
different, what a remarkable difference that made for this, for this pastor to then raise generations himself and then uh, shepherd generations of, of, of Christians by this active intervention by his grandmother to adopt him. What, what, what a remarkable story. What a remarkable um, what way that God works to, uh, 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 that we see uh, in the same way today that we see Solomon working here. Listen, the enemy is always at work bringing all sorts of evil to bear on people and on families. And, you know, we, we might be tempted to think that our world is more sinful than ever. I'm convinced that we just know more of it. Same sin's always been there. We just know more about it because there's so much more communication from all over the place. You know, there's nothing, as Solomon tells us later, there's nothing new under the sun. The situation Solomon's wisdom is brought to bear on is about as dysfunctional and sinful as it gets even though there was no social media there to help find an answer to that wretched situation. You know, click here for one simple way to prove which prostitute the child really belongs to, you know. Um, The enemy is and always has been at work to destroy the lives of Christians. There's a target on our backs. And his lies may be adapted for new and more complex purposes, but they're the same old lies. And so we're educating in this context, we're, we're, we're seeking to impart wisdom, God's wisdom to our children in that context. We're educating to capture the hearts of our children. Our goal must be always to nurture in our, in our children a heart for God, a heart themselves to plead for God to give them a heart after him, a heart that says with Psalm 27, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Our, our aim is education for wisdom, not just for college and vocation and career and money and all the rest, but wisdom that begins with a heart set on seeking God himself. And listen, the enemy is at work. We know that. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, principalities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Our aim is raising up children who take on the whole armor of God, well-trained to recognize and hate every foolish way as they grow in wisdom. As I heard, we heard Robert Rayburn earlier, children who grow up to be adults, sophisticated in the ways of the world and the devil. Otherworldly and resolute Christians superbly prepared for spiritual warfare. This means that our children will be skilled to know and reject their own unbelief, their own sin. So, you know, Jay Adams said years ago, we're all sinners, but we all have our own unique style of sin. I need to know my own style of sin so that I can can mortify it. But they should be trained not only to see their own sin, but also discern the lies and schemes of the enemy outside of them. So when they're told, follow your heart, they know that's a lie. That's bad advice. When they're told, freedom is the freedom to be anyone and anything you want to be. You can literally make yourself whatever you want to be. They know that's a lie. That's a dead end. Or when they're told, you came from nothing, you returned to nothing, so YOLO. It's up to you to live your truth. They know that's a lie. Or when they hear, well, you know, there's good and bad and bad and good, and there isn't such a stark separation between the two. Or the mind is its own place, and in itself can make a heaven of hell and a hell of heaven. You know who said that? Satan in Paradise Lost. That could be the... That could be written, uh, you know, in billboards all around our country right now. The mind is its own place, and in itself can make a heaven of hell and a hell of heaven. 
We want our children to hear that and say, that's a lie. That will damn me if I follow that. Educating for wisdom is training our children to recognize these pernicious falsehoods for what they are. Lies, magnetic lies, but lies, subtly garbed folly from the devil that if one builds one's life on them leads to vanity and emptiness. And finally, last connection, wisdom and the church. We need each other for our children to grow in wisdom. Pastor Jeff and the the elders of this church stand strong, shepherd these families. We need the church. We can't do it alone. Um, No matter how smart or skilled we are, we we all share our own weirdness and styles of sin with our children. We need the community to rub off those edges, those sharp edges. I'm talking about mine and Ashley's weirdness and our children. I know what this looks like. The community of godliness and authority and wisdom that we call the church is not some optional appendage, either for the Christian life or for the education of our children. So to educate for wisdom is to educate for the church. Solomon's wisdom was put in service to Israel. His His wisdom was a kingly wisdom that serves and aims for righteousness to abound. And listen, you share that kingly wisdom. You're, you're a son and daughter of the king. You're, you're a, a royal bloodline, the light of David himself. So you share his same royal wisdom. You might be tempted to say, wow, man, I, I wish I had the wisdom of Solomon so I could figure out things like that. I mean, I would like to be able to do that too. But listen, with Christ, there's one greater than Solomon. And Christ is here with us today. He is present among us. He is the wisdom of God incarnate. He is in you and he dwells in your heart by the Spirit. And so Christ is greater than wisdom Solomon. He is that which Solomon wisdom was pointing towards. So you have access to wisdom that Solomon could never dream of. So pursuing wisdom for the sake of Christ's church is a high privilege that we and our children have access right now to by God's word and his spirit. Well, I close by quoting Matt Whitling once again. Raising kids is a timed event with eternal consequences. How we fill those 16,000 hours between the first day of kindergarten and the day of graduation are among the most crucial decisions we make as parents. And so I close with this exhortation. I'm going to speak to you students for just a minute, all of you children in the room. I encourage you. Have you prayed and asked God for wisdom? Make that your prayer. Ask God for wisdom. And then ask him again tomorrow. And ask him again, Providence students, before you go to school on Wednesday. And then do it again the next school day. And again the next day. Parents, seek this wisdom so that you can impart it to your children like a a pearl of great price. Proverbs teaches us that wisdom from God must be pursued. It must be um, loved. It must be courted like a beautiful woman, the woman wisdom. I want to read, I'm going to close by reading just a few verses from the beginning of Proverbs 2. And I want you to listen to the verbs, okay? Focus on the verbs as I read it. My son, if you receive my words, treasure up my commandments, making your ear ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, Then you'll understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Listen, did you hear those verbs? 
Call out, seek, search, raise your voice. Those sound like a a, a desperate man who is dying of thirst, calling out for a sip of water. It's not the shrug of, "Eh, okay, Lord, whatever. It's, it's, It's thirst. It's desperation. You can't just slip on wisdom like a sock. You have to incline your ear toward wisdom. So parents... Seek out this wisdom so that you can share it with your children. Make this why you educate your children. May we all seek out Christ who is the wisdom of God. May the Lord God make us all like greater Solomons, able to discern good and evil. May the Lord make us wise, wise in the scriptures, wise for salvation and wise for his glory. Amen. Let's bow and pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for allowing us to look into your word and to hear your word. I pray that, Lord, it would be like seed falling on good soil, that it would, be, uh, uh, that it would bear good fruit, the good fruit of wisdom, not just in our hearts but in our lives and in those of our children and grandchildren. We ask for your favor and grace, O oh, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen.